you'd play around and then you get hit with the bill afterwards. And they're saying, well, it's dynamic pricing. Basically, this is how the airlines would do it. You paid after? After. So it's not even it's not even how the airlines do it. It was you Are you with kidding me? After. I've never heard yeah. of it. That's phenomenal. Yeah, I don't know. It was like, well, depending on how many people show up that day, they come up with some price. I think that backfired on them pretty, pretty It's like going but... to dinner with people that are really into wine and like you're sitting there having like a couple Miller lights and they're just going, they're just flipping the wine book, you know, to the, to the very back. And then they're like, we'll just split it at the end. It's like, Oh my gosh, what happened? What just well, yeah. happened? And then there goes your chance to ever enjoy wine. I'm Roberto. And I'm Dan. On the course record show, we talk about the business of golf. We discuss the trends, insights, and strategies defining the industry now and into the future. Dan, excited to kick this off. Uh, something we did on the Course Record show a couple of years ago was do a series. We did three or four episodes that were 20, 25 minutes long around DTC. So direct-to-consumer brands that included uh, Walker Trolleys, uh, included Trap Golf, included Piper Golf, and it was really well-received and it was fun, kind of those shorter, get-right-to-the-point conversations. And it was something we been discussing and we're interested in so that's the direction we went so so here we are we're going to do it again and we're going to focus on real estate what's driven your interest in this the interest comes from the question golf is growing COVID was the best thing that could have happened for golf but is it sustained i think it really comes from understanding that angle and what are the pitfalls in that argument because it's such a it's easy to say but then when you look at some of the dynamics it doesn't always prove it out so i think we can chip away at that a little bit today yeah. And the other thing that um, has caused me to, that's piqued my interest is I grew up playing pretty much at three golf courses. Uh, I lived in Baton Rouge. We were members at a little club there. My grandparents uh, were members at a club in Houston. And then when we moved to Atlanta, we joined a club and all three of those are now closed. None of those golf courses exist. And, uh, you know, I, Technically, I guess grew up playing at country clubs, but they definitely weren't the uh, the top hundred or top thousand or maybe even top five thousand type facilities. Considering they're all closed now, so those three are, are of personal interest to me. Uh, we're going to try to reach out to some folks that really know the stories of those clubs. Um, but I, I have to share this: I started doing some research last night. Two of the three are now being repurposed or in the process of being repurposed as flood control. So in Houston and in Baton Rouge, they're talking about going to like the city or the watershed and using them as like basins for flood control, which is pretty fascinating. So hmm. hoping to dive deeper into those, but I thought that was, that was pretty weird. You sound like you seem like you really have the magic touch, Roberto. Every club I, you touch seems to turn yeah. <laughs> quickly south, but the, I didn't realize they're being repurposed for, for that. That's uh that's a very interesting, I mean, I could see how these cities need more flood control. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of open air space around. So the golf course becomes yeah. like a very logical target. I never, never thought of it that way. Yeah. What about you? You started a little bit of research, just kind of, uh, you know, National Golf Foundation has some trends and does some reporting. What'd you find out? Well, as you know, and as the audience may have picked up on by now, I'm a hopeless data nerd. So I couldn't let that bias not show in today's episode. But I was trying to figure out, you know, if what what is the overall um, consumption of golf these days compared to pre-COVID or even during COVID? And is it driven by a change in demand or supply constraints? 
And it's kind of a mixed story, frankly, because the demand is still very strong. Um, it has waned a little bit, but my working thesis today is that golf could have captured more of that demand if the supply question had been stronger. I think we're realizing it's very hard to find affordable, convenient, meaning near big cities, golf. And most of the golf that we're seeing grow has happened in non-traditional venues, meaning non-green grass. Think of the top golfs and the putt shacks of the world. And that's really what the National Golf Foundation stats really, really show. Um, you know, they, they cite that only 130 courses closed in 2021. That's still a lot. And that's a low, that's a low year in terms of golf course closures. So that's been a very interesting trend that I think has gotten really overshadowed by the golf is booming stories that you hear repeated over and over. Yeah. 150 golf courses closing in the middle of a boom. I mean, 2021 was probably the peak of that boom. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, I think that's kind of why we're doing this. And, and I want to know, you know, are we just here to BS? It's a podcast. That's, you know, partly the reason we're podcasting in general, but are we, we would trying... never, we would never BS. What's what are we trying to figure out? Like, are we trying to identify the top three causes of, of a course closure or like the, what is the, maybe there's one like silver bullet that can predict when a course is going to close. That That's my question is, is it the economics? So the golf course in Atlanta, I was a member No, it's way North of Atlanta and coming Georgia. When they closed, they had transitioned to public golf and their green fees were somewhere in the 30 to $50 range. And I just can't see how you can operate a facility at that price point. And so I want to dig a little deeper there. Or is it governance? You know, you hear that a lot, right? The members buy the club, it's mismanaged. They're not professional managers of a, of a golf course, of a real estate business. Or is it demographics? Like I also have, could easily seem to make the case um, before we get more information that it's just really kind of the demographics, like the neighborhoods, the schools in the area, what part of town is growing. You know, I think in Baton Rouge, that was a big part of, of the story, kind of the up and coming nice neighborhoods went to the other side of town. Um, all questions I want to, I want to try to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've got three working hypotheses for this. One's on the demand side, two are on the supply side. So on the demand side, you know, there's a lot of affordability questions for the golfer between the state of the economy today and inflation and uh, just frankly, the, a lot of the green fees really jacked up pretty high during COVID on public access course, daily fee type courses. So that's really kind of squeezed affordability for the public golfer who's trying to figure out how to spend that disposable income. So that's been a real challenge that I've seen in some of the National Golf Foundation data, as well as some anecdotes that, I, that I'm sort of experiencing here in the Boston area. Two, on the supply side, most of the boom came in these non-traditional facilities, like I described earlier. Yeah. But the conversion of that into green grass has been very, yeah. very poor. And that's, I think, primarily a supply question in a lot of cases. Affordability factors into it too, but I think there's just not, people don't have a place to go beyond the top golfs of the world and the putt shacks. You know, they, they want to get on green grass, but you know, it's gotten a little easier now, but good luck getting a good tea time. Out yeah, proximity is such a big one there, right? Access is one thing, but proximity is another. It's like if you look at the millions of gyms out there and then fitness places, group fitness, 
there's you always join the one that's within like five to eight minutes of your house or use that one. And golf is a disposable recreational income type thing too. And it's just such a big commitment when the only accessible golf courses are 45 minutes away. Golf takes long enough. Now it's a seven, eight hour day. So I think it's not just price and, um, you know, whether there's tee times open, it's location. 100%. Yeah, that's a great point. All right, your second supply side. Sorry, interrupt. Yeah, so the third theory, the second one on the supply side is lack of development incentives for would-be builders of golf courses. You know, the, the development costs are really shot with all the supply chain issues and all the labor shortages that we're seeing. That's relieved a little bit, but still exists. And then just the lack of land in populated areas, right, to your question about um, having to go really far. So most of the green grass growth has happened in what the National Golf Foundation terms as destination golf. Yeah. And that's both like the Myrtle Beaches of the world and then like the, the Bandons of the world where it's more resort driven. And that's been so, so in my mind, it's not really new golfers going to those places to go. It's existing golfers getting new, more rounds. Um, so that's great for the, the diehards um, who really want to play, but not really lending itself to a great on-ramp for new would-be golfers or transitional golfers from non-green grass to green grass. So those are the things I extracted as far as the, the, some of the little, in my research, some of the theories, some of the data seems to support one of these three hypotheses as leading causes. Yeah. And another thing, when you said incentives for development, I'd be interested to talk to someone in just kind of the broader real estate world, because it's very complicated. Neither you or I are, are real estate experts, but you know, the way you can finance, the way you can, you know, all the office buildings going up in Midtown Atlanta, there doesn't seem to be any demand, but real estate is always like a game you're playing, like reinvesting money. And it's very much a finance game as much as like a pure supply and demand game. And I'm wondering if golf course development is uh, disadvantaged uh, by tax law, by kind of the financing available. So maybe something else we could, we could look into. Yeah. I mean, the model of these new courses being built as a way to sell homes doesn't seem to be the new model today. Right. And um, so that does make the, the ROI question for the developer uh, much harder to address. So yeah, definitely a challenge. And there's so much out there. You know, uh, one of my favorite podcasts was uh, Mike Young, who owns the fields on Andy Johnson's fried egg podcast. And he was like, look, the dirty little secret is that like, you can actually run a golf course and, and have it be profitable. It can be a good business if you know how to do it, if you do it right. And it's easy, you know, the, the, oh, if you want to lose money, don't buy a golf course or own a golf course. He's like, no, th there's a group of us that are actually doing it and running a profitable business. Um, so I think, you know, another goal of ours should be to kind of unpack some of the reality versus just the kind of, you know, after the round BS that people say like, oh, it's a money loser every time. Is it? I don't know. We'll see. Golf courses and airlines, right for jokes on how to turn a billion dollars into half a billion dollars, right? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to some of these upcoming conversations. Stay tuned. Uh, appreciate everyone listening. Please subscribe to the Course Record Show, Apple Pods, uh, YouTube, wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, uh, and look forward to, um, to continuing this. This episode is brought to you by Holderness and Born. They have a holiday gift guide up on the site, and I can tell you I'll be grabbing a few things for friends and family. The Fisher Belt is amazing. You can pack it on a business trip and wear it for golf or with a sport coat for dinner. The Navy Fisher is probably the most useful item in my closet. Another easy gift is the Jackson hoodie. It works really well for a casual weekend day or on the golf course, and it's pretty easy to guess someone's size in a hoodie. 
Check out hbgolf.com for these gifts and more. A buddy of mine just ordered a couple of Navy polos and nothing crazy, but he absolutely loves them. He said the fit, the drape of the fabric are really a cut above anything else that he owns. Check out these better fitting classics and great gift ideas on hbgolf.com. Okay, Dan and I have a lot of questions, so we brought somebody that might be able to provide some answers. Uh, Lincoln Duff joins the Course Record Show. Lincoln was in acquisitions at Concert Golf Partners. They're an owner-operator of 30 golf courses across the U.S., and he currently works for ACD Consulting, which helps golf courses generate more revenue through a variety of strategies. Lincoln, thanks for jumping on and joining a couple guys who have uh, more questions than answers. Perfect. Here to help. So, Lincoln, we're exploring the golf boom in COVID-driven or otherwise yeah. and figuring out what's going to make it sustainable, what's going to make it sort of a uh, flash in the pan. So we're exploring both theses on the demand side and the supply side. And I think we think you're perfect to really uncover the supply side of the equation a little bit here. Roberto and I, we, we share a worry that the supply side isn't sufficient enough to meet the influx of new golfers that a sort of COVID identified. What's your take on that? Well, there are a lot of golf courses out there, first of all. I mean, typically I'm dealing in just the private sides on the, the acquisitions front. So I'm I'm out there looking at private clubs, but there are a lot of golf courses. I mean, um, you know, I think about, I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I think about the, the golf courses that are around here. And there are 20 public golf courses within 30 to 45 minutes that are very reasonable to go play. Uh, you know, they're not going to be up to the um, superintendent standards of, you know, the honors course, but they're, they're grass and they're greens and they're holes and you can go out and have a good time. And so I think that, I think there's plenty of supply for that beginner golfer to go out there and, and play. Um, and I think a lot of those people are discovering golf at top golf anyway, or at these, you know, non green grass facilities. And then they're kind of going out to play at the green grass. So uh, I don't see it being an issue of there's not enough, uh, there's not enough courses. Now they might not be able to get the Saturday morning tea time. That's, that might be an issue, but they can get out on Wednesday afternoon or something like that. Is that typical in other markets? It sounds like that's a, a lot of supply near where you are. Well, what are you seeing across the country? Because that, that's one thing we talked about is proximity, right? a golf course that's 45 minutes away is, is not as useful as, as one that's close to my house. What are you seeing across the U S totally? Yeah. You, you have to get out and drive a little bit, right. Which is uh, you know, if you're in New York city or something, that's tough. Uh, but you know, in Atlanta uh, you have Bobby Jones right there, but other than that, you kind of have to get in your car and drive out of the suburbs, but then there's plenty of golf courses, right. And not a lot of them are great, but there's plenty of golf courses. Um but again, it, it's not going to be some walkable city center course unless you're in these like really cool spots, Bobby Jones, Winter Park. You know, there's some good ones that are that are walkable in town or or at least you know within five ten minutes. But uh, yeah, the the urban real estate values are are really high in lots of cities, right? So a lot of those have been converted to real estate, um, and if they can't be, then they're they're saved and preserved and have been redone, hopefully to to you know fulfill the uh the need that they have but um yeah i mean they're you got to go to the suburbs for sure where the land is cheap we started uh looking into golf courses and real estate for a couple of reasons one is that the three courses i grew up playing are now closed yeah. and we talked about what are the reasons a golf course might close so dan found out in 2021 130 golf courses closed which kind of shocked me but i had three 
uh, candidates. One, just the economics, right? Didn't make sense. Two was, hey, they actually had a decent business, or but it was just mismanaged or the governance was bad, maybe on the private side, let's say. And then third is is just demographic shift. So a golf course that may have been thriving a number of years ago ended up on the side of town that lacked development and the demographics went away with them. I and mean, if you had to pick one, what do you see when a golf course closes or is really struggling? What leads to that? Pre-COVID, I think that would be mismanagement, lack of demand. Uh, Post-COVID, if a golf course is closing now, that's probably because the real estate is very valuable and they're they're selling it to develop. Um, there's plenty of demand at these courses. Um, so I don't think that's an issue. I think the closings that we saw from kind of 08, 09 through probably 19 were mostly related to the huge boom and overbuild we saw in the 90s and early 2000s, right? So we had a lot of neighborhood developments that were really, really poorly planned out golf courses that were just kind of thrown there because they could sell houses. And so the golf experience is not good. Uh, you know, the golf course is not good. And the developer made all his money selling the houses and the lots. And there's no, there's, there's not a huge profit left in the golf. And so he loses interest or he sells the, the, the club because his money maker is now sold, right? All the lots and houses have been built. So he's left with this asset that's very capital intensive. He's got to put a lot of money back into it. Uh, so he's probably sold that, given it to the members maybe, but then they're on the hook to pay for all the repairs, the upkeep, the maintenance. They don't know how to run the club. Uh, and again, it's it's not a well thought out golf course, right? I'm, I'll use the Atlanta example again. There's a lot of really terrible golf courses in Atlanta that were built around housing developments. And, you know, I don't have the urge to go play those. I'd rather drive an hour and go play the fields because it's a great golf experience, right? So um, I think the closings were because these these poorly thought out courses were overbuilt. Um, but now I think you're seeing closings more on the, uh, you know, in, in a city center, um, expensive real estate to build something. Right. So I think that's the difference between kind of post recession and post COVID where these closings. How does that play out on the real estate, uh, on like a residential development? So I played a, a charity outing a few weeks ago at a golf course that you know, probably fits the profile you're talking about. Really nice neighborhood, decent golf course. But I just kept looking around and saying, like, this is what happens when you push off CapEx for, for 20 or 30 years, right? Crumbling cart paths, uh, just a lot of infrastructure that needed upkeep. Um, like, how does it play out? I mean, you can't sell a golf course that's, you can't close a golf course, or can you, that is just tracking through a neighborhood of million dollar homes. Or is that where a concert golf or another kind of equity fund comes in? I mean, how are you, how is this playing out across the United States? Yeah, so typically these these larger groups, concert heritage, Arcus, um, they're buying clubs where they know they can make at least one to two million dollars in EBITDA uh, on the club. So typically that's a club that's doing five, six, seven million dollars in revenue for their you know twenty five to thirty five percent margin. Um, a, a club that is you know, in a, in a not as nice housing development, right? Just a very entry level housing development. They're not going to have interest there, right? And so because the profitability is not very high. And so typically you're left with the developer, right? There's a, there's a case here in Chattanooga, this developer bought 
four or five golf courses that were really struggling uh, about 10 years ago, packaged them as, hey, you can join and you're a member at all of our clubs. He didn't invest a dime into any of them. He just sucked out all the cash. And one of them was a neighborhood where the homes are, are fairly nice, nice neighborhood, but the golf course was horrible. And the, the neighbors were fed up and he's like, well, I'm not going to pay any more money. Like I've paid my money. I've, I have no interest in keeping this place up. So he just shut it down. So now it just sits shut down and like the homes are selling for 500,000 to a million bucks. And there's, uh, you know, a, a shutdown golf course where they try to market it as, Hey, we have green space in your backyard, but it's, you know, shut down golf course. And so there's not really a path back for those kind of places because the golf course was horrible to begin with. I mean, it's, it was built like on the side of a mountain and, you know, not very well thought through, but again, that's, that's where the developer made all the money in real estate and threw a golf course down to sell. And then, you know, there's not really profitability in that course because people weren't going to play there because it wasn't a good experience. So Lincoln, there's a lot of talk about growth in new golf course construction and some pretty prominent examples of projects there, right? You take it, Zach Blair's tree farm and a couple other growth in the resort area, destination cities. From where your vantage point, is it just going to be a few big marquee projects like that that we're talking about? Or is there a lot more runway for growth? In development for golf well land is expensive so you know i don't think you're going to see a ton of new golf courses again in city centers um you're seeing some developments that are you know new like the park down in west palm beach or you know tree farm that's that's kind of modeled after the hoopy model of destination very high-end uh private golf club uh, but again these are driven by the demands of a very small group of people who can afford a really high initiation fee and, and keeping the, the club up. Um, but real estate and, and home building is not driving new course design anymore. Um, you know, very few new developments intertwined with real estate are being built unless they're, you know, a, a second home on a lake or in the mountains, right? Where it's, you know, maybe not your primary destination, but you're going to, um, you know, some new development that has a, a Corn Crenshaw golf course on it or something, right? So um, th that's not happening in a suburb anymore like it did. In hearing you talk, Lincoln, there's, there's something kind of dawning on me that I want to workshop with the two of you. You know, we talked about, okay, these new destinations, super high end, like you mentioned. And then even talking about in the urban, suburban spaces, right, those courses that are still out there, either from the overgrowth or whatever, where you can, yeah, you can't play Saturday morning, but you can play, you know, Wednesday afternoon, for instance. I think those two kind of models that we spoke about there, they seem to me like they really lend themselves well to guys like us who are like existing golfers looking to play somewhere. I don't know that those are going to be great at bringing in new golfers, right? Like, Golf is a pretty intimidating sport to learn. Yeah. And just between the cost and the all the little etiquette fussiness that sometimes turns people off, and then you throw in like inconvenience and distance and stuff like that. I was looking at a study from the National Golf Foundation said most of the new golfers that were created were created not in green grass. So it's like the top golfs of the world and other kind of alternative facilities. Where are those folks? Where are they going to go if they're going to learn and, and really foster that spark with golf and keep playing in green grass? Where is that going to be? I mean, it's municipal courses, you know, uh, that are cheap to play and you can go out and, you know, cutoffs and flip flops and tank tops. Um, those exist. Those are, those are alive and well. Uh, but there's also been a push to have 
you know, new golf concepts where you have city centers. There's one in Jacksonville. I'm trying to think of it. It's not called the fields, but it's something similar. The yards. The yards. That's it. Yeah. Where they took an existing 18 hole course. They, they redid it into what is it? Six or 12 holes, Roberto. Yeah. Something like that. Lit, you know, there's, there's uh putting greens place to bring your kids, right? I have a three-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter. They, they love golf. My three-year-old son loves it. You know, I take him to the golf course all the time. Um, a place where I could let him run wild. Uh, I've taken him out to Sweden's Cove here in Chattanooga. It's got an enormous Himalayan putting green. He spent two hours just hitting the, you know, putter as hard as he could and watching the ball roll around and going to find it and chasing it, right? So it engages young young kids. It gets them into it. It gives uh, beginners a place to go where they don't have to hit a driver. I think it's it's much easier to start on the pitch and putt the you know take three wedges and go play holes that are 60 to 100 yards where you know you don't need the real estate footprint you're not going to hit it 100 yards offline right worst thing you can do with a wedge is maybe shank it or thin it a little bit but you're you're going to keep it in the ballpark um and so you can kind of move people around and and it might take an hour instead of three and a half to five hours right so i think that that helps the the entry into golf as well and it's it's almost just kind of a, a stepping stone from top golf right it's it's not quite real golf but it's way more real than top golf one thing that echoes a couple was well, something that you jumped off the page that you said earlier in our conversation you mentioned the golf experience you know two three times and without going down the you know alistair wokenzie you know jeff shackelford kind of lament the modern golf course architecture. I, I think there's a lot of validity to it. So these kind of Northern suburbs of Atlanta, it's really hilly up there golf courses that are put in residential communities. Dan, they're not that enjoyable to play. If you're a new golfer, if you're a um, trying to make that jump, right. Bobby Jones works not only because it's in the middle of Atlanta, but because when they rebuilt it and took it from 18 to nine, there's like four bunkers on the property. The fairways, it's all cut to one height. The ball, the fairways are connected so you can kind of spray it anywhere and find your ball. It's only nine holes. There's a huge Himalayas putting green with young kids. There's a driving range with kids and families all the time. So you almost have to, and this may take 50 years, right? You, you have to almost build these facilities to help people, to give people a, a growth path in yep. golf. And right now, digging out of that kind of 80s 90s uh if you're a i mean i try to invite you know people to play business golf or try to connect with people that way it's not that great when you go play an 18 hole round or even a nine hole round on a golf course where you lose 55 balls and you have to ride in a car it's just different i've done it at bobby jones and it works so there's a lot to that golf experience and just getting down to the base appeal of playing the game and what the what the experience is that that may have more to do with this than the uh the kind of the business case here yeah i mean you, you look at the you know those those north atlanta courses we're talking about they have forks carries right they're long quote-unquote championship golf because they all were built to try to hold some tournament that they never got and you know the average player that carries the ball 200 yards off the off the tee with a little bit of slice right they're all cut through wood so there's yeah there's Trees everywhere. Take him to Bobby Jones. There's there's a reason width and angles works, right? And for for guys like you, Roberto, you can you know 
pick your spot and chase the angle to get a better approach to a pin. But someone that's shooting 110, they're not thinking about that. They're thinking about, I can roll it up and make a bogey, right? And they're excited to make a bogey. But it's it's still the same principles of width and angles and giving people room to hit it and find it or giving a better player the room to chase an angle to have a better you know, attack on the pin, right? And it's not like it's just a field with a green and a hole. There's still thought to it. There's still, you know, there's four bunkers, but some of them are placed strategically where you're going to think about it a little bit. You know, if I take my mom out there, she won't think about it. She'll just hit it around it because she's not going to carry it to it anyway, right? But um, it, it gives a beginner a chance to make a par or bogey, and it gives a better player a chance to chase a birdie and maybe make a bogey because they're in the wrong spot. I'm I'm flooded of memories of looking up golf courses to play years ago where the world where the word championship golf course was thrown out there. And he never really took a look, you take a look at the scorecard. There's one tee that's like at 7,013 yards, just pushed over 7,000 to earn that that moniker. It's uh yeah, it was such a different set of incentives in that time. And you're right, how many championships are hosted on those courses? Zero. Right? Um, yeah. No, I, I, I like where, going back a few minutes, I, I like where you both are going in terms of like, hey, find these alternative facilities that are cool and invested in like the yards and Sweetens and uh, Winter Park 9, et cetera. I think I'm a little more pessimistic than you two, if I'm being honest, because I just don't know how many of those places there are, right? Like if I, I'm in the Boston area, Lincoln, and I, I think about our options here. We've got a great public track named George Wright, which is a cool Donald Ross place. You know, sounds like you know about it. Good luck in a tea time there. Very, very hard. Like it's very cheap, very affordable. Places in pretty good shape, fun design, very hard to get on. Uh, like a sort of nicer daily fee kind of horse, call it like 40 minutes away, 45 maybe from the city center. During COVID, probably got a little greedy and started doing this thing called like you'd play around and then you hit with the bill afterwards. And they would say, well, it's dynamic pricing basically. This is how the airlines would do it. And that just turned a bunch of people off. So you after, get a lot of those. You paid after? After. So it's not even it's not even how the airlines do it. It was. You Are you kidding me? After. I've never heard yeah. of it. That's phenomenal. So <laughs> obviously it's one anecdote, but like talk about a course that's, you know, Was I think. Is it based they, on your score? Like you pay per stroke or? Yeah, I don't know. It was like, well, depending on how many people show up that day, they come up with some price, right? That kind of deal. Um, I'd be is, nervous the whole round, like that I was yeah. going to get some huge bill at the end. I think that backfired on them pretty, pretty It's like going but, to dinner with people that are really into wine and like, you're sitting there having like a couple Miller lights and they're just going, they're just flipping the wine book, you know, to the, to the very back. And then they're like, let's just split it at the end. It's like, Oh my gosh, what happened? What just happened? <laughs> well, yeah. And then there goes your chance to ever enjoy wine. Right. And I think that's, that's right. some of the back, I think some of the courses that I think there's some, there's some sentiment around here, at least. I don't know if this resonates with both of you around, the price gouging having gotten really backfired on people again. So making it really hard for that beginner golfer to take traction in the game because yet another turnoff of golf. Right. So anyway, I'm being really, really Debbie Downer on this. I recognize. Boston, New York, Philly, where there's not, well, Philly actually has it kind of to the West, but like Boston and New York, they don't have ample suburbs, right? You don't have these, you know, Atlanta, Chattanooga, the South, like there's, there's farmland within 30 minutes of, of me pretty much wherever I am, right? If I drive 30 minutes, I can find farmland. You don't really have that in Boston, right? If you're in the city center, it takes a while to get out to where there's ample land. And so, you know, there are some markets that are gonna feel that where others don't, right? Roberta and I live in places that have a little bit more of the, 
you know, the, the field style golf courses that are 12 bucks to play. And, and, you know, you can just show up and drop some money in a, uh, a box there and there's an attendant that comes and gets it once a day. I mean, those still exist. There's, there's quite a, you know, there's three or four within an hour of me probably. And so um, it, it really does depend on your market, right? I mean, you're going to have a, a tough time finding, you know, you have millions of people that live in Boston too. So that's, that's going to be tougher. Interesting. All right, Lincoln, give me one short-term prediction for, for golf and golf course development and golf real estate, and then give me one long-term and I'll, I'll define long-term as 20 plus years. All right. Uh, short-term, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of renovations at clubs. They, uh, private clubs specifically got fat and happy over the last few years, you know, with the nonprofit model that they all, um, adhere to the member owned model, at least they have a bunch of cash because they've raised initiation fees and, and dues and they have to spend that, right. They can't make a profit. And so, uh, we're going to see big, big, uh, ticket renovations and that's going to be uh, golf course as well as club clubhouse, uh, you know, pools, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think the, the good part about that is there's so much of that going on that it's giving these young golf course designers a chance to, you know, make a name for themselves. Right. I mean, uh, lookout mountains, a club here in Chattanooga that just w underwent a big renovation. They had Gil Hans do the plans back in the late nineties, early two thousands to kind of bring back the Seth Rayner roots. And they didn't have the money to do it. Then they did a little bit of it. Um, and they finally had the money to do a proper Seth Rayner restoration, but Gil's busy and he's expensive now and he's, you know, doing the honors course and he's doing uh, uh, a lot of other very high priced places. And so they got Tyler Ray and, and he was a lot more affordable and he knocked it out of the park. I mean, the, the place is awesome. Uh, and that's given him a chance to go work at Wakanda and work at some of these other places. Right. So we're seeing, you know, a lot of these guys that have worked for the, the Hans, the Doak, the, Corey Crenshaw now kind of start their own firms and have their own places. Uh, you know, guys like Rob Collins at, at Sweden's Cove, he's blowing up, right? He's his, his waiting list is long now too. And so I think we're seeing these kind of younger guys get a chance, uh, which is cool. And they're, they're, they're putting their own spin on things. Um, and they're turning a lot of these, you know, championship style, hard golf courses back into kind of the fun, uh, golf that, that should hopefully make it more enjoyable to play, right? I mean, a lot of it is taking trees down, widening corridors, expanding greens, which helps the the guy that doesn't hit it great, but it also is more fun for the, the you know, good player. Um, so that's kind of my short-term prediction. We're still going to see that over the next few years. I still think we're going to see these destination kind of uh, remote places built as well uh, because there is still demand. And then long-term, I think you're going to see a lot of these, uh, you know, like the yards, a lot of these half golf concepts, six holes, 12 holes under the lights. I think that's something that, that hasn't been done very much. There's not a ton of like lit golf courses. There's some, some cities have them, but uh, you know, there's a range here in Chattanooga that keeps its lights on until 10 o'clock um, or midnight in the summer. And you just go pay with the credit card and the ball machine and you can hit and it's packed. I mean, 11 PM on in July, it's packed and there's demand for that, right? There's demand for uh, courses to, to put lights up, but, but none of them have really been doing that. So I think you're going to see a shift in um, some courses that, that are, are built like that. 
and obviously sustainability is going to be a big factor too, right? Uh, less water use. So trying to figure out ways, you know, to, to shrink the footprint, I think will help. Uh, and maybe even like using turf uh, instead of grass. I think we might see that uh, kind of long-term too. So those are kind of my predictions of, you know, where things will, will trend. One comment for, for our Gen Z audience, all three of you out there. When he says there's not enough lit courses, he means literal lights, not anything else you're thinking about. I just thought I'd correct that real quick. There's plenty of lit people out there playing golf. Lincoln, can't thank you enough for the time. Uh, really appreciate your insights. I've definitely learned a lot, and we will continue to try to track down um, some insights on on the business side of uh, golf course operations and real estate investment development, et cetera. But this has been a, a really interesting conversation. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was fun. 